This week, we are continuing in the book of Esther, which, as we talked about last week, is a fascinating book and a book that is like um, no other in Scripture. Last week, we really only covered two verses because there was so much historical background that we had to learn. And so what we talked about last week is we learned that... Howdy. (laughs) We learned that... uh, this kingdom, Persia, is the setting, and we're kind of focusing in on this guy in chapter 1 named Xerxes, who is the king of Persia. Not only that, they are at this point really um, at the height of their success as an empire. They have conquered what was known as really the world at that time, all of the Middle East, Northern Africa, and southern parts of Europe. They really reigned over all of it. And they were the most powerful nation in the world, which makes Xerxes the most powerful man in the world. Now, the Persian Empire was rich with wealth. He had two palaces, and each one was completely decorated with gold, and it was very gaudy, and they had all of the spoils of the treasure of all the other kingdoms they had conquered. And so this week we get to this place in in the book of Esther where we're going to see this big party um, that the king of Persia, Xerxes, um, he he really throws this giant party. And we're going to see it's for 187 days. Okay. Now, how many of you have had some party life in your background? I don't know how much you've partied or to what extent, but I doubt there's anybody in this room who has partied for 187 days. Anybody? If you do, like, you should come up here and preach this message, because, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) uh, this is, like, the craziest, largest party that I can imagine. And he throws this party, I believe, because they had just seen a large success, maybe um, in battle or in war. Maybe they had finally defeated. Looking at the timeline, we're not exactly sure what was going on here. If they're either preparing for war, like, hey, let's have a giant party before we go to war, or if they had just um, defeated a large battle, and so they're like, let's take six months and just party. <laughs> but either way, we, we see that they're going to throw this giant party. I believe that, um, this is just my own personal speculation, if you look at the timelines, it could be close, uh, that they had just defeated the 300, right? We talked about that last week. And they're partying because they just slayed half-naked Gerard Butler. <laughs> the star of that movie, if you haven't seen it. Uh, so we're going to go ahead. We'll, uh, last week we read the first two verses. We're just going to go ahead and read them again because it's only two verses. Verse one. Now in the days of Asherus the king, um, sorry, the days of Asherus the Asherus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Asherus sat on the royal throne in Susa the citadel. So this is one of his two capital cities, one of his palaces. This is the winter um, palace, and King Asherus is his. Persian name, historically we know him by his Greek name, which is Xerxes. Now, verse 3, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp, don't you love that word pomp, of his greatness for many days. How many days? A hundred and eighty days. Six months. So he's like, hey, let's just have all the governors and, and our servants and officials and, the, and uh, all of really the, 
rulers and the, and the nobles, so the richer people in their land, he would have invited all of them to this giant party where he's like, I'm just going to show off. Like, I want people to realize how awesome I am. I want people to realize just how awesome our nation is that we can take six months and just lavish ourselves with the best food in the world, the best drink in the world, and just party for 180 days with all the rich people and the governors. I do not know how they got anything done in that entire empire for six months. If all of your governors and your officials and all your nobles and your king are partying for six months, they must have been fantastic at delegation. (laughs) Like, I mean, say what you want. These are some sinners for sure. But one thing they must have been good at is delegating. Like, we could learn from that. If if you're not able to take six months off, you haven't learned to delegate yet. (laughs) You know? Uh, So they obviously are letting other people kind of run things out there. But they're just partying for six months. Um, I mean, I can't. I really, like, I've tried to imagine what that would be like. I, I just can't imagine it. I mean, it would be, you know, maybe fun for a few days, you know, have some good food, some drinks, you know, whatever sins they were participating in. Right, you could say, but at six, certainly after six months, you have to go, what are we doing? After six months, you must wonder, did they get bored? Well, maybe they did, but verse 5, it says, And when these days were completed, the king gave... For all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So after 180 days of partying, they're like, let's, let's have one more week, everybody. Seven more days, but this time let's, let's get it even crazier and let's invite everybody in the city, no matter who they are. If they're a homeless person laying on the street, if they're people serving us, it doesn't matter. Let's have everybody in the city come to this party and we're going to party for seven more days. Okay? This is crazy. Uh, they are complete party animals. And they have the wealth and, and the ability to do this, which says a lot about their kingdom and a lot about them. It's actually said historically that the Persian kings would make all of their decisions drunk, <laughs> uh, which is just great leadership um, skills. <laughs> like, just make all of your decisions drunk. In fact, if they made a decision while they were not drunk, they would revisit the topic later while they were to make sure that it was a, they made the right choice. They trusted their minds in an uh, altered state more than they did in a <laughs> sober state. Uh, so they're partying, they're partying, they're partying. They then invite the entire city to party with them. Verse 6, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold. Let's talk about those for a second. So we know that the Babylonians built these couches of gold, and it's most likely that these are the same couches of gold that they probably took when they took the spoils of Babylon. And so what's really interesting is they found these couches, and they're not gold-plated. They really are couches made of solid gold that were made by the Babylonians. They lasted throughout the Persian Empire, and then they were actually even in the Greek Empire when they defeated the Persians. So talk about an old couch. Right? Most of the time when you talk about an old couch, you're like, oh, that old couch, like, put it on the curb. (laughs) These old couches were amazing. We're talking about solid gold, and they 
were really the couches that people sat on for three empires, which is pretty fascinating. Um, just free information. So the, you can just see here that they're kind of explaining how beautiful it was from the, the curtains uh, to the couches to the pillars. This place was beautiful. This place um, had all of the wealth that you could imagine. Um, so the couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of um, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stone. So this place is beautiful. Verse 7. Drinks were served in gold, golden vessels and vessels of different kinds. So some uh, Greek historians wrote that the Persian royalty, they would drink from a golden cup, and then they would set it aside, and the next time they want to drink, they would drink from a different golden cup. And that cup would be melted down and recrafted, and they would never use the same golden cup twice. But, I mean, you know, you see, like, in movies where, like, I don't ever wear the same clothes twice, right? But, like, I don't ever drink from the same cup twice. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. But they, it was a way of them just showing their wealth. Like, hey, like, we've got so many of these golden cups. I can just keep drinking from a new one every day, burn them in the furnace, melt them down, and bring me some new ones designed in a different way every week or whatever they were doing, who knows. But it's pretty fascinating. They obviously love to show off their wealth. They love to, to really revel in it and, and to enjoy it thoroughly. They wanted to be seen as the richest and the greatest of all time, as we talked about last week. Xerxes didn't just view himself as a king. He viewed himself as God. And a lot of this shows that he did view himself that way. Um, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belongs to King Ashurus. So, listen here. He tells all the people, drink as much or as little as you want. There, this is a judgment-free zone. We're not going to force you to be drunk like we have been for six months, but we're also not going to ju- judge you if you just get wasted. Uh, I, you know, can you imagine the t- headaches they would have? Like, I mean, if you go drink hard for one night, you ha- it takes a whole day to recover. These, these people are just drinking for six months straight and then another seven days. I just can't imagine this. This is absurd. So we find out that the men were mostly partying in the garden. And the queen was throwing a feast inside the palace for the women. Um, that sounds about right. Most of the time you have a little party at your house. The guys go out and grill the meat, you know, and <laughs> the ladies hang outside. Not always, but uh, it's interesting here. Um, okay, so we see this giant party. We see that it's the entire city. We see that the men are outside. We see that the women are inside. And we get to this very interesting portion here between King Xerxes and his wife Vashti. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, which apparently is the right time to make decisions, uh, he commanded a bunch of names that I can't say sober. I don't know how he says I'm drunk. <laughs> uh, he commanded Mehuman, uh, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. You've got to be drunk to say that one. Uh, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Asherah to bring... Queen Vashti before the kings with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty 
for she was lovely to look at. Oh, that's so sweet. Nope. Uh, if you read this text, uh, some believe that he is actually asking her to come out in only her crown. <laughs> uh, and she's going to say no, rightfully so. Um, and you have to understand, for her to say no, even though she's the queen, whatever this guy says or commands is to be taken as the word of God in their culture. So for her to say no, even as his queen, is, is a serious matter. Now, he could, and maybe other Persian kings would have done this, he could have had her executed for this. You are not to disobey the king of Persia. If he commands something or requests something, it is to be taken as the word of God, and to to disobey it would be punishable by any punishment he saw fit. So, we see verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the seven eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Uh, anger is oftentimes a result of being drunk. Oftentimes. Uh, you know, you see a lot of people who are alcoholics. Um, they regularly revert to anger. And so we see here, he has made a poor decision, and asked a wrongful thing of his wife to come out, um, possibly showing off her body to the entire city. Which she responds, no, and this makes him extremely mad it's as burning with anger so now you have not just a drunk king but you have an angry drunk king whose wife has disobeyed his word which is to be taken as the word of god then the king said to the wise men who knew the times for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment so he's got a bunch of wise men he's got probably men who were even from different countries, they would take the smartest and the wisest of every culture and they would bring them in and train them and and have them as advisors in the Persian realm. So we have guys from all sorts of different backgrounds and probably all sorts of different beliefs who are his wise counsel. And so he goes to them and he's like, basically, what are we going to do here? The men next to him being um, Karshina, uh, Sethar, Edmatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Memekin, the seven princes of Persia and Media. So he asked these seven princes of Persia who are also with him, who saw the king's face. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. They saw the king's face. He's burning with anger, and they see his face. And sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashi? Because she has not performed the command of King Asherah delivered by the eunuchs. So this guy speaks up. Then Mehukan said in the presence of the, kings, of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashi done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of the king Asherus. The queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Asherus, commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the normal women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath uh, in plenty. So, 
hold on a second. Let's talk about who's talking here. A eunuch who doesn't have a wife. Okay? <laughs> a eunuch is a guy who uh, manhood has been removed and serves in the king's palace and would often take care of the harem or of the king's wives, would serve them, help them out, kind of oftentimes... The king wouldn't even see his wives for a while because he had so many, and he also had harem, which are basically just like sex slaves. Uh, And they would just kind of deal with people and kind of run the household of the king. So this is not a married man. This is a man who's a eunuch who doesn't have really any experience to talk about uh, marital matters. But he decides, it's my turn to speak up. I've got an idea. We need to make sure we punish her severely because we don't want all the other women in the kingdom to get an idea that they too can be disobedient to their husbands. Okay? Uh, now, I was reading some different um, Jewish writings about this. And some of the Jewish writings saw Vashi in a negative light because she was disobedient. But the majority of them actually saw Vashi as a heroine. Um, for standing up and saying no to King uh, Xerxes. What's interesting is I was reading this, and one of the rabbis was writing, and he was talking specifically about obedience to husbands. And he said that Queen Xerxes' request and uh, punishment was ridiculous. And he said that, and I actually really like this. He's like, if you ask your wife to make you peas and she makes you lentils, you don't get mad at her, she's the cook. (laughs) right like let her decide what to cook and so even in you know ancient jewish culture they saw that a husband's role was not to just boss them around that they were to be trusted and to make their own decisions and and to really have their own input in the relationship and to not get mad at them when they didn't make the meal that you wanted and this is ridiculous of uh king xerxes to just demand her to obey every word of his uh, you could say he has kind of a make me a sandwich doctrine on marriage, uh, and which is wrong, and which scripture actually speaks against. If you look um, throughout scripture at how a marriage is to be operated, men are to love their wife as Christ loved them. Think about that. You know, you have certain verses in scripture that talk about respecting husbands. But you know what? What you see often also is that the husbands are to serve their wife as Christ served us. I want you to think about that for a moment. This is not um, in any sense as Christians for us to look at and say, well, you've got to respect your husband. Vashi was bad for, for not listening to her husband, not doing what the husband said. No, absolutely not. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And that is... That is a huge task. It's a huge task. But that is the call. And so it's not, go make me a sandwich, woman. It's to serve her and to love her and and, and watch and see that that wife will respect that man. I mean, any of us who are being treated lovingly and being cared by somebody starts to have a lot of respect for somebody, don't we? And that's the context in Scripture that we see marriage. When a husband is being the type of husband that Christ would want us to be, those women respect that man. And what we see is a very healthy marriage. But what we have here is the opposite of that. We have a husband who does not respect his wife. 
This man is an abuser of women. We know that because he has maybe thousands of harem. He had a different woman every night. Um, the queen was just there for kind of looks. Um, he had many wives, but he would have one queen who was kind of to stand by him and look good, and it was normally the one he viewed as most beautiful. Vashri means beautiful. He may have given that name to her. Um, this is my most beautiful wife. So now her entire identity is in her beauty as his trophy. Talk about trophy wife. And she has no real input in the marriage. She probably doesn't even see him very often because he has many wives and many harem. And so this is the opposite of what we want for a good marriage. And so for him to demand this of her is ridiculous. Um, She's already poorly treated. And now he wants her to come and flaunt her body in front of the entire city, which is ridiculous. But this eunuch speaks up. He's like, we've got to punish her. She has to be punished. Otherwise, other women are going to get an idea that they can disobey. And so, verse 18. Um, oh, sorry. Verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before King um, Asherah, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. What's fascinating about this is that the Persians actually developed the world's first postal system. They reigned over this huge amount of territory, and through that they actually created the first postal system in the entire world. Not only that, when they wanted something to be spread out through the entire empire um, as fast as possible, they had a system set up where they could literally do it as fast as possible. They, in every direction, would have a stable with horses in every direction in 14 miles, and then another 14 miles, and another 14 miles, and another 14 miles. This allowed a rider to jump on a horse and run it full speed, and they found out that a horse can go about 14 miles full speed before you're going to kill that horse or that horse is going to fall over. And he could leave the horse at the stable, jump on another horse, and go um, full speed again for another 14 miles. And so you could have riders go out in every direction, hitting these stables, getting to every area with a message, as fast as a horse can run. And so they are decreeing that this new law is to be set, that in all of their empire, women are to obey their husbands. (laughs) And that is what they decide to do. And Queen Vashti is removed from her position as queen, and that they are to look another queen. And that's what we'll find next week is where Esther comes in. We don't even see Esther in the entire first chapter, but this is setting up the stage for what we have. So in this text, we have a few themes here. But the theme that I see is that of debauchery. 
the definition of debauchery is excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. The second definition for debauchery is seduction from duty, allegiance, or virtue, or duty. It's excess of a sensual pleasure, or it's to um, be seduced from a duty or allegiance or virtue or duty that you have. You see? Um, so what we have here is them taking things that are good gifts from God and then abusing them or perverting them, which is debauchery. So we have um, food. They're probably overeating. They are being wasteful. They're probably not taking care of the poor throughout their kingdom. Instead, they themselves are just being gluttonous, selfish, and overeating, indulging to the, to the maximum. Now, food is obviously a gift of God. We live in Austin, Texas. I mean, we've got so many good restaurants here. We have the best tacos in the world. We know that. Uh, it's, it's been voted by Austinites. But <laughs> uh, we're in a city that loves food, and there's nothing wrong with loving food. There's nothing wrong with enjoying food. It is a gift from God, but to overindulge or to be wasteful is debauchery. It's gluttony. Um, so they are participating in, in that form of debauchery. And we talk about alcohol. In Scripture, we, we see commands and over and over again to be careful with alcohol, to not get drunk, to, to not be someone who is an overdrinker, but to be someone who, if you drink, to drink moderately. So we see something that is, um, in Scripture, viewed as a, a fine thing, a good thing, like food. But if you overindulge, it's debauchery. The Bible says that to um, not get drunk for that is debauchery. It says that in Ephesians. So we have something that is good. That is, I mean, if you have a beer or wine, you know it tastes good. Maybe not everybody agrees on what they like, but we know that it tastes good. And it's something that can be enjoyed. But if it is abused, just like food, it is debauchery. It is wrong. It is sin. Um, we also live in a city that loves to party, that loves to consume alcohol. Um, if somebody visits Austin, Texas, one of the places they ask about is what? Sixth Street. Austin is known for its bars. It's known for its restaurants and it's known for its bars. It's a city that loves food and it loves alcohol. But it's one thing to see these things as a gift from God and to enjoy them in moderation. And it's another thing to abuse them. It's another thing to overindulge, which is to um, abuse a gift, which then becomes sin. And then we see here um, with sex. Sex is also a gift from God. Um, Sex sometimes is miscommunicated in the church. Um, But sex is a beautiful thing that is to be experienced between a husband and wife, and it's a gift from God, and it's great. (laughs) Right? I don't have to tell you guys that. We know that it can be great. But the Bible speaks against um, sex in a lot of contexts. And what we see throughout all of cultures, almost throughout all of time, is that um, sex, which can be good, gets perverted and becomes debauchery. Whether that be sleeping outside of marriage, whether it be um, homosexuality, bestiality, orgies, anything... Um, If you look around the world or you look at history, you look at scripture, we see that these things happen and they are perversions of a gift of God. They're perversions of what God 
um, gave to us and how he intended it to be used. And so God um, gives good gifts, and then we tend to, as sinners, to pervert them or overindulge. And so we see they are doing all these things. Again, we see with marriage. Marriage is a good gift from God. I would argue maybe the best gift from God. To have a wife, I mean, I, I love my wife, and she's you know, almost everything to me, to have that person who's beside me, who's, who's you know, speaking into my life, encouraging me, challenging me. Um, she's absolutely amazing, and it's a huge gift in my life. But then we see here, over something um, ridiculous, divorce happening, which is also a perversion of what God intended marriage to be. God doesn't like to see people getting divorced. Um, now, there are circumstances in Scripture where divorce um, may be necessary or allowed, but for the most part, I mean, it's supposed to be a life commitment. And it's a beautiful gift from God when it's viewed that way and when both parties um, come and, and desire to love each other as Christ loved the church. It can be an amazing thing. Divorce always is the result of sin, one form or another, on one side or both. Uh, nobody gets divorced without there being sin on one side or both sides. Um, so when we seek to love each other and to um, live upright lives, we see marriages that are healthy and great and amazing. And so we see these good gifts, we see four of them here, that are being perverted. They are being um, distorted into something that's evil, and we would call that debauchery, which I know is such an extreme word, right? I remember I was like 18, and apparently like, I didn't know what that word was at 18, which I feel like, I did, I, my vocabulary at 18 I feel like was pretty poor. <laughs> I remember I was like with a friend, and he was sharing his testimony at a church. that They asked him to come speak, and he was a heroin addict, and, and he's sharing his testimony. He's like, I was doing heroin and every form of debauchery. And I remember like after I had to like, Google debauchery, because like I didn't know what that word meant. Because I was like, what specifically is he saying he was doing? <laughs> I was curious. Uh, it just means a perversion of, of, or an overindulgence in something sensual. Uh, but I remember that was uh, funny. Um, but we see here that these people are overindulging. And then you, you see with the second definition of debauchery, which is to... Um, be seduced from a duty, allegiance, or virtue. That's the type of debauchery that I think that Christians fall into. Right? We have a duty, we have an allegiance, and we have virtues that are God-given. Um, you know, God gives us an identity as Christians. And he says, Here, here's the things that I, I want you to do. Here's the type of life I want you to live. And we have an allegiance to Christ. I mean, He's our Savior. He's given us everything, forgiven us of all our sins, laid His own life down for us. So we have an allegiance to Him. We have a duty um, to fulfill. We have virtues to walk in. And what Satan loves to do is to seduce us and to get us to abandon those for something lesser. Sin is fun. There are many sins that are just fun. People wouldn't do them if they weren't fun. There are many sins that, you know, 
you can experience and you're like, this feels good. Okay? I like this. But sin is secondary in experience to what God has called us to as Christians. We talk about this all the time in our church, and it's because I believe it is so important and it is so important that we don't forget it. And that is that in Christ we have the best possible life. It's in Him that we can have true joy and peace. We talked about this through the entire book of Philippians. That we are not living for sensual, temporary feelings. We're living for true peace and joy that God gives us through His Holy Spirit living in us. We have something that is far better than the seductions of this world, than the temptations of this world. And Satan wants you to be seduced. He wants you to abandon your virtue, your duty, and your allegiance to Jesus Christ. In Ephesians it says that he is firing fiery arrows at you. But that's why we have the armor of God, specifically the shield of faith, to raise it up and to block those arrows. Satan wants to take you down, believers. You know that. Because it doesn't take long for you to be tempted with something right after church, does it? This week you'll be tempted with many things. This last week you were tempted with many things. And you had an option in those moments to say yes or to put up the shield of faith and say no. And we see Vashir Uh, Vashti, Queen Vashti, as someone who stood up and said no. I've been partying with you guys for six months, but this is too far. I won't do that. And we have to come to a place in our lives where we finally say no to a sin. And unfortunately, we let it go way too far before we do that. Sometimes we entertain thoughts for way too long before we finally say no. We indulge for a little too long before we finally say no. But let's say right now, each one of us in our hearts, that we're going to say no to sin. That we have a duty and an allegiance to Jesus Christ that is far better than any of Satan's lies trying to take me down. I'm going to put up my shield of faith, my faith saying that I know that what Jesus Christ has offered me is so much better That this loving, amazing Savior has given so much to me. He's offered His entire life. He laid it down so that I could be free of sin. He's offering me eternal life. And we believe all that. So we lift up that shield and we can say no to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin as a believer. You've been freed from that. Now, you still are in this body of death, as Paul talks about, and so you're still going to struggle with temptation, and you're still going to make mistakes. But here's the thing. Christ, through His Holy Spirit, can give you victory over everything because He ultimately has already defeated it. And that means He has the power, and that means that when He's living in you, as, as Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We can have victory, church. We can stand up and say, no more. And I don't care what your past is. And Jesus doesn't care either. 
But our past often makes us feel as though we are still slaves. Our past weighs us down. Who knows? Had Vashti done things like this before? We don't know. What kind of sins has she participated in as well? We don't know. But there came a moment where she said, enough is enough. No more. I'm saying no. We have to come to that place as well. And it doesn't matter what's going on before. You can't say, well, I'm just not good enough to say no anymore. I just, you know, it's been so long in this, there's no possible way I can ever get out. I've struggled with this my entire life, and I'll, I'll struggle with it for the rest of my life too. And so we live in defeat, because we think that way. And you know what, that is true if you're talking about your strength and your ability. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the power of the living God who lives in you, who has power, who can defeat your sin here and now, today. By His strength, not yours, you can stand up and say no. Amen? Church, we have to repent. Because we have something that is so much better than any sin in this world. And that's relationship with Jesus Christ. We have true love. We have true peace. We have true joy. And we so foolishly trade that in for the sensual pleasures. We so foolishly trade it in. But we can say no, and we can move forward. We'll read a few other scriptures here. Um, Romans thirteen twelve says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that wording. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There is something so important here that we can really easily miss. We can read, we could say, sexual morality and sensuality, not quarreling and jealousy, and then say, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, and skip that line in the middle that is where we get all the power. The line in the middle there is, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that armor of light. Holiness and perfection is his identity, not yours. Victory is his ability, not yours. So he's like, you got to cast all the old stuff off. you got to refuse the sin. Put on Jesus. Take the armor of light. Take the Holy Spirit. Wear it. And then you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. But if you miss that step, you'll feel defeated all the time. And so, the key to defeating sin in our lives is to go to Jesus, go to Jesus, go to Jesus, go to Jesus. Rely on Jesus. Rely on His strength, not our own strength. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, there is a renewing of our mind that happens before we're able to discern what the will of God is. There's a renewing that happens first, and then we are able to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, we're transformed. We are to be renewed. And so we have to invite Jesus into our thought life. We have to invite Jesus into our minds and say, Jesus, teach me how to think. Renew my mind. Transform my mind. When we do that, it changes everything because we are learning what the will of God is, what's acceptable and perfect. We can't rely on our own thought patterns. We can't rely on our own decision making. We have to go to Jesus. That's why it's so important for us to be in the Word daily. Why is it so important for us to be praying daily? I know, I know that sometimes you read, read the Bible and you're just like, it's kind of boring. Or I've heard that part. Or Let me give you a few very easy tips. If you're finding the word really boring, read an easier translation. Okay? Well, I, I personally like more literal word-for-word translations, but those, because um, of the differences in language, can be a little bit choppy and harder to read. They're great for studying, and you want to trust the more literal translations when you're preaching a message or doing more in-depth study. But if you were just struggling to read because you're like, I don't know, it's using a lot of words I don't get, or I'm not feeling the flow, read an easier translation. It's perfectly fine to do. I sometimes do my casual reading in the NLT, but I do all my studying in the ESV. The, The NLT reads easier for me. And so I'll do a lot of my personal reading in that. But then I'll find a verse, I'm like, oh, I don't know what this theology is. I don't go to that one because it is less literal. I go to a more literal one. So read a different translation. That's okay. Another one, listen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So you don't have to just read. You can listen. The Bible app, the one that says Holy Bible, and it's a brown little book, that one has like 10 translations you can listen to. I regularly listen to the Word of God on my way to work or driving from job to job. Turn off the music for a little bit and listen to the Word of God. Allow that to start renewing your mind, transforming your mind. We have to be in the Word. I don't care if you know it, you don't know it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like I don't care if you've heard it before, you can know it better. So it's good for us to be in the Word. I would also advise you, find an accountability partner. Do a reading plan with somebody else. Get into the Word every day with somebody else. Text each other. Say, hey bud, did you read this verse? What did you think of that one? I didn't read today. Get on it, bro. (laughs) You know? Have somebody who you can regularly text back and forth. One or two other people. Read the same stuff. Ask each other questions about it. First Peter um, chapter 4, verse 3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, 
living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking, parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even those, to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Ultimately, we are to live in the Spirit, church. Romans 8 one says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So you can live under the law of sin and death. You can live under the flesh in which you will be condemned, or you can live in the Spirit of life. How good is that? That's what we need, church. We need to walk in the Spirit. When we walk in the Spirit, when we, when we put on Jesus, when we wear the armor of light, our lives start looking a whole lot different. When we allow Him to change the way we're thinking, our lives start looking a whole lot different, don't they? So I don't, I don't care what you're struggling with today. I don't care what your past has been. You can stand up today and you can say, no. Enough is enough. Today I'm taking a stand. Uh, speaking of a sin that I know many struggle with, Job said, I have made a solemn promise never to look with lust at a woman. Solemn promise. Another translation, a solemn promise with his eyes to never look at a woman with lust again. There's a moment where you just need to take a stand and say, today's the day I'm making a change. Enough is enough. And so today we're going to be partaking of communion, which we do in remembrance of Jesus Christ, in remembrance of his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us and the new covenant of life that we have because of the work he did. So as we take communion today, do it in remembrance of Jesus knowing that he loved you while you were still a sinner. He died for your sins while you were still a sinner. Not after you fixed yourself up. Not for your best moments, but he died for your worst moments. And we don't repent of sin to earn salvation. We do it because he already freely gave it. And we repent to enter into relationship and, and to receive this gospel that is freely given to all. And then as believers, we live our lives continually repenting. If we slip up, we repent. And we keep moving forward in the graces of God. So today, whatever it is, it could be many things. It could be something you've struggled with your whole life. Today you can do this in remembrance and say, enough is enough, Jesus. I trust that what you have for me is better. I choose today to repent. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you did on a cross. God, thank you for every person here who made a decision to come to church, to, to hear your word. God, I pray that your word speaks to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit works on us, Jesus. Lord, that you're renewing our minds 
as we pray right now, Lord, as we partake of communion today, I pray that you would renew our minds, transform us. That today we would say no to sinning, yes to Jesus. Yes to to the life that he has set before us. Yes to the good works he has planned for us. And no to the sin. No to the fiery darts that Satan is throwing at us. No to the temptation. No to the seduction of the devil. Yes to the true life that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.